Kia ora, good afternoon. You are on the panel on RNZ National. This first up to be in retail at the moment is to deal with retail crime. That's the reality for 92% of those surveyed in Retail NZ's latest real crime, retail crime survey rather. But the kicker is the total annual cost of retail crime is estimated to be at 2.56 billion dollars annually, two and a half billion. It's massive and massive for those dealing with the possibility of facing burglaries and shoplifting every day. With us is Mark Noff Thomas. He's the CEO of the New Market Business Association. Sometime panelist. Kia ora, Mark. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you? Good. All right. So you oversee one of uh, New Zealand's larger um, retail precincts. Um, do you see this on a daily basis? Absolutely. We we started to see a bit of a change in behaviours back in 2020, actually. Uh, sorry, 2020, just when COVID started to kick in, things started to go a bit crazy for us. And they've just continued to do so. Um, and really, things which were bad seem to have got worse. Um, we've, you know, we see, we've got hundreds of retail stores and obviously cafe bars and restaurants, etc. But there's been a marked change in behaviour, antisocial behaviour, more violent behaviour, um, this is against the backdrop of the never-ending retail theft, which all retail areas experience because that's the nature of retail, unfortunately. Uh, but certainly things have, have really changed in the last 18 months or so, and retailers have to contend with this on a daily basis. Okay, so if you've uh, seen it on a daily basis, what's an example or two over the last couple of days? Oh, you know, well, against the normal retail theft we have, you see antisocial behaviour, people with obvious mental health issues behaving very erratically and strangely on the street. Uh, we've had incidents of, of random violent attacks against people, uh, incidents of people just, you know, for no reason whatsoever being confronted by um, by random people. So this this has been an ongoing thing. So, you know, we early this year, we, we took the matters into our own hands and started our own security operation called New Market Security, because we were very lucky to be in a position to be able to do that. So we've, we've invested quite heavily into, into security services under our own brand, um, just to really keep a lid on it. And so I've got, you know, patrol guards out seven days a week, uh, working with retailers. They've got body cams, we've got CCTV integrated to the New Market Police Station. One of my staff sits inside the New Market Police Station beside the police, so there's a really good fluid sharing of intelligence. One of your so staff in- sits inside the police station? Yeah, we our CCTV is, is monitored. Yeah, well, our CCTV is monitored out of the New Market Police Station. That one of my team sits in there and works very closely with the police, and is basically the eyes of the precinct, and so gives the police immediate access. Um, I mean, the police have CCTV access anyway, but not at such a direct level at, at a, in a precinct basis. So the police have got immediate obs- observations on what's happening in the precinct and can re- respond much more quickly than maybe otherwise. But that's off the back of my own my own team out and about being sort of first responders to lots of events happening. And, you know, we've been going since the beginning of February, and I think my team have been involved in just under a 1,000 arrests with the police and would have retrieved hundreds of thousands of dollars of stock, uh, stolen stock. And the stolen stock thing is just never-ending. Um, but unfortunately, because of the nature of retail theft, most people get away with the low-level stuff because there aren't enough resources available to right. deal with it. So it's basically a, 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 a sort of a policy of catch and release. 
Well, let's so bring in let's bring our panel. Yeah, let's bring our panel, Mark, and you, you can continue with that uh, line, sure. Mark. Oh, sorry, Paula. Um, two questions, actually. You've half answered one of them, but the first one is why do you think that there's been this increase over the past 18 months, Mark? And the, and the second thing I'm interested in is, you know, you speak of that catch and release uh, thing that's going on, but from a criminal justice perspective, I mean, what what, what is happening? What You know, how many people are charged? What are they charged with? And then what happens when they're going through the court system? Uh, to answer your second question first, so I think that just the sheer volume of what the police are contending with means that they're, they're unable to actually process some of the lower level crime. And, you know, what might be a particularly awful situation in one area may not be that awful compared to something else happening in another area. And so police resources are deployed accordingly. So, you know, a murder trumps everything. And, and you know, we're dealing with some serious crime across Auckland and the rest of the country. And that's where the resources tend to go to, the more serious stuff. So generic retail theft uh, seems to go unchecked largely these days, unless there's a bit of a, a gap in the workload. But the police do respond to the more serious stuff pretty quickly if it, if it deals with violence or, or any weapons are involved. So they are onto that pretty quickly. But the rest of the stuff, honestly, the way it looks right now, it's you've got to do a lot of retail theft to get on the radar of the right. police. Yeah. And what about the why? Why why are you seeing such an uptick over the past 18 months? I don't know. I think, you know, I think New Zealand seems to have a bit of a lot of a lot of anxiety. I think the country seems quite stressed because of covid. A lot of people are dealing with some mental health issues themselves and poverty. I think we we're experiencing. I don't necessarily know if poverty is the main driver. Because we we have an incident management system we monitor uh, every event that happens and, you know, things like logically in in, in economic crisis or you know People are going through tough times. Um, things like food theft would increase exponentially. We haven't seen that. So for us, retail apparel theft is our biggest, followed by makeup, and then third up is uh, retail food th- food theft at about seventeen percent, and that's remained quite constant actually. Um, but it's still apparel and and makeup are the two big ones, okay. and they often they can be unsold, which is why they they're probably chosen first and foremost. Stephen. Uh, Mark, I wondered what you made of that figure of $2.56 billion being the cost of um, retail theft. I know if you can sort of you know, put that into the sort of I, new market. I think um, it would probably be on the conservative end of the scale, to be mm. honest, because a lot of it goes unreported. Um, a lot of retailers, especially the smaller retailers, may not be aware. They may not have the procedures and, you know, the infrastructure behind the business to know what the stock actually is all the time. Mm. And so a lot of it will go unchecked and often a retail, low-level retail theft isn't reported to the police. So I think it's probably quite hard to give it a, a really... A, but my, my, imagine, my sort of... Uh, my Looking at what we're seeing here, I'd imagine that the, the figure is considerably higher. And I guess another question, if I may, uh, Wallace, is, um, uh, you know, you mentioned that you have people out on the streets and in the, you know, monitoring, helping monitor with the police, etc. Certainly here in Napier, we have uh, Napier Assist Afina Tangata, which I've seen around the street. I mean, how successful are these sort of initiatives to, you know, have people around that can diffuse potential violent situations or just stopping things getting too far out of control. Oh, I think it's been possibly the greatest thing we've ever done as a business association. The feedback has been monumentally fantastic. Retailers feel safer and they've got, you know, they're knowing that we've got their back. Consumers are giving us feedback uh, that they feel protected and safe seeing the visible guards on the street. I think, you know, there's a lot goes around the visibility of seeing somebody there who's there for safety purposes. And I know when, when the police are walking the beat as they used to, when people see the police, they take, they sort of, they think, they, and they sort of maybe stop. And I know, for example, if you're on your car, 
belting down the motorway and you see a cop car on the side of the road, you, you know, you check your speed and you might slow down. It's an immediate reaction that when you see the police, you sort of become more aware of what you're doing. And I think the visibility of the police and or securities people on the street who are approachable and doing the right thing, it's, it's very important. And what my team have been able to do is de-escalate an innumerable number of, um, of events that have been happening around Newmarket. I can, all I can say is, though, I feel so privileged that we can do this and I feel really sorry for Eric areas of New Zealand and town centres that don't have the resources to do what we've done. Could it also be, some have suggested, uh, down to more improved reporting? No, I, you know, I know there is more improved reporting and there's a lot more sharing of intelligence going on, but there's also a lot of reporting which isn't going isn't going through the books, um, you know, that isn't getting reported to the police. So I, I guess we're, we're comparing it with it from a very low base because we didn't really have good reporting technology tools back in the day. So it's hard to know, but I think definitely speaking to my security guards, one of whom has been doing Newmarket for over eight years now, he has seen himself on the street a marked increase in, in change of behaviour in retail crime and just antisocial behaviour generally. Interesting stuff, Mark. Well, um, stay well. All the best. Kia ora. Thanks for being with us. That's uh, Mark Knopf-Thomas, CEO of the Newmarket Business uh, Association. Interesting uh, topic there. That's uh, quite a bit of money uh, there, Paula, two and a half billion. Sure. Uh, And uh, the question why still stands uh, on whether uh, the drivers multifaceted, it might seem. Yeah, I mean, your question about poverty was was the one I was wanting to ask next. And, you know, his answer was sort of suggesting that that might not necessarily be the case because you'd think that food would be higher up the list. But apparel is obviously a need and also really expensive. So, you know, you'd you'd have to consider, I don't know, maybe it's different and depending on the geography, but you'd have yeah. to consider that it's a factor. And it might be different uh, in the New Market Business Association to other areas. Uh, a, bit of start, a bit of response on that. Thank you for that. Uh, you are on the panel. Paula Penfold, Stephen Jacoby with me this afternoon. Taking a look at how our political parties are using social media, there has been a large focus on misinformation and disinformation recently. So what does an analysis of social media posts tell us? Well, our guest today says there is a slight cause for some optimism. More on that soon. It's an ongoing study. The New Zealand Social Media Study will continue to monitor Facebook posts until Election Day on the 14th of October. With us is Dr Mona Cruel, Director of the Internet Social Media and Politics Research Lab at Te Herangawaka, Victoria University in Wellington. Dr Cruel, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, what are the main what are the main platforms that parties are using? Is it a TikTok or your Facebook or what? It is all of them these days. Um, so they don't want to miss out on any voters. Of course, you catch the young voters these days a lot on TikTok. Um, on the other hand, we know that Facebook is still the most important uh, medium when it comes to social media communication and when it oh. comes to where people get their political information from. So I always call it the family social media channel because you have everyone there um, from from the boomers uh, to Gen X. Uh, yeah, it's to a juggernaut, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so everyone is still there. And so they invest most of their campaigning actually um, uh, on to Facebook. Uh, one of the reasons for this in New Zealand in the, uh, specifically has been Jacinda Ardern in the past. 
So she used this very much um, as a medium to campaign and to reach out to people also in the pandemic. And the others flocked to Facebook as well. These days, we also see them a little bit uh, more on Twitter, which seems to be a medium in particular. Christopher Luxon is using it a lot. Winston Peters is using it. Chris Bishop uh, and others. Um, but it's one where you also more find journalists than you actually find the voters uh, seeking political information. Um, and we have Instagram. Um, Instagram, of course, does not allow you the same communication as Facebook does. It's much more focused on photos. And the users are also much more female. Yeah. So they're all a little bit different, but they try to be consonant with their communication across all of them, um, though adapting them to the different channels. All right. So Facebook, before we go to our, our panel, Paula and Stephen, can I ask you, so there's a slight cause for optimism, you say. That might surprise many listening. How so? So the thing is, um, of course, every one of us has expected misinformation to rise. Um, ahead of that election, I have seen in my data, because I'm constantly monitoring that, um, that disinformation was going up from 2.5% in the 2020 election to nearly 6%, like in June, I would say, um, before we were heading into the election. And now we have actually started the election uh, study. And in the first week, it was not that bad. Um, so we didn't see any of the parliamentary parties posting any uh, disinformation, no real full-fledged fake news or conspiracy theories. This was very much limited to a small sample um, of uh, far-right fringe parties. Um, and we did not find anything for the, for the parliamentary parties, which is good news. They still um, do not think that this is an accepted um, strategy of political campaigning in New Zealand. That's why I'm cautiously optimistic, okay. because we all thought it would go up, but we don't find it quantitative. All right, well, quantitative. let's bring our panel. Paul, I mean, you've submitted work on, uh, on this, this issue. What's your thoughts or comments on this? Um, I'm interested. Nice to speak with you again, Mona, because we have spoken before in the past about yes. this particular <laughs> issue. Uh, great work and interesting work. What is your take in terms of uh, the social media companies' efforts now to combat, you know, the examples of disinformation or misinformation or half truths, as you sometimes describe them? Is there fact checking? Is there an effort by either the companies or the communities to kind of self? you know, self-address the, the stuff that's incorrect? Actually, not that much. Um, so it, we would all wish it would be more. Um, so after the 2016 election in the U.S., um, they have actually done a lot because back then they were accused of being responsible for all of the dis and misinformation that the Trump campaign has been spreading. And so for a while, they tried to be more transparent, give researchers more access to their data. They have taken rolled all of that back. Um, and in particular with Twitter and after Elon Musk has taken over, this is now open and flooded with disinformation. So there is a lot more and the attempts to actually debunk um, uh, false information um, are reduced and not increasing. Um, so this is this is one one of the big problems. Um, I have to say one of the reasons why the disinformation that I find is pretty low is that my sample is parties and party leaders. Um, so I'm looking at when is this spilling over from the really bad channels like um, uh, Counterspin and others into mainstream social media? And when does it become an accepted strategy among established political parties? And so this is still a very clean sample compared to if you would look at other places. I see. Uh, deep down um, to, to groups um, who are already close to um, extremism um, and probably should be watched for terrorism. Stephen. 
Yes, well, look, uh, Mona, it is a bit uh, reassuring that um, at least the major parties are sort of um, um, behaving ethically in social media. Though, I, Although I wonder if that it's not also part of the social media um, equation, if you like, because no sooner has someone said uh, something that's misleading or, you know, possibly, a, I don't know how you'd like to describe it, a half-truth, there are a million people who will point it out. I mean, it's a risk, isn't it, uh, if, if you can't get that right? Yes, of course, this can this can always backfire. So um, very often you will hear people say these days that elections could be won on social media. I would still say this is exaggerated, given how many people still get their political information from traditional media. But what is surely true is that these days you can lose elections on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, if you get one thing really wrong or you do something embarrassing on uh, social media, this will absolutely backfire and people will, will um, uh, point it out. Um, and um, you, you can definitely lose an election over a mistake on social media. So this yeah. is also a risky thing and it can backfire at any point. And of course, and the of mainstream course social media is not necessarily um, averse. Well, not a, what, what would I say? You know, they can make mistakes too, uh, and they can be also um, pointed out. Well, let's just wrap. Up. Let's bring Paula in, and you can respond to both, um, Mona. Well, you, you briefly mentioned the the parties that aren't in Parliament as being the main source of disinformation. What is what are their favourite topics these days? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, their their favorite uh, uh, topics uh, these days um, is uh, so very much um, uh, they are attacking uh, transgender people. So we very often see disinformation uh, co-occurring with hate speech against transgender people. So this is one of their big topics because, of course, um, the vaccine mandates are over. And so they don't focus that much on this uh, stuff anymore. So the kind of fake news that they are spreading these days is very often things like the litter box hoax, um, where they claim um, that um, uh, kids these days um, would identify as furries or cats and would have litter boxes um, in classrooms. This came from the UK and spread over. Good grief. But yeah, it is not true. It has been debunked several times. Um, But this is something they like to spread. Um, Another claim that they very often make is these undefined globalists. Um, money from uh, ordinary New Zealanders would go into their bank accounts. They are very much against the UN and believe the UN is basically secretly governing uh, New Zealand. Um, They already brought that up in the local elections a lot since then. This is around. So these are their their favorite uh, topics um, uh, that they uh, focus on. What's interesting about that to me, Mona, is the fact that while the, the, the main parties, if you like, the ones in Parliament or, or the ones with a higher chance of getting into Parliament might not be repeating that disinformation directly themselves, they are repeating some of those talking points in some of their public forums, aren't they? Yes. Um, so, of course, they kind of pick this up, um, and very often this can be a problem. It's also a problem when the when the traditional media picks it up. That's always why I like not why I don't like to give too many examples and try to uh, confine it to uh-huh. those that are already out there because I don't want to give it even more exposure yeah. um, and also contribute to that. But it is a problem um, that this stuff also gets picked up and transferred um, through the mainstream parties, but also through the traditional media. Um, and the political actors learn from that. They get more exposure, mm-hmm. um, and so they will keep doing it. It's a spiral.
Interesting, interesting topic, Mona. I really appreciate you being on today. Uh, thanks for uh, th- that real insight there. Mona Crawl there is Director of the Internet Social Media and Politics Research Lab. So um, some cause for guarded optimism, you know, perhaps not like other countries where some of these uh, theories have uh, uh, influenced, as perhaps we're going to be talking about after 4.30, other countries. Yeah, I mean, do you think? Wow, I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not as optimistic as Mona. Yeah. I mean, she's been studying, you know, studying the, the stuff directly. I haven't been recently, but I do get concerned about some of those talking points that she, you know, the disinformation specifically that she's just referenced by some of the more fringe parties. You definitely see a. a a continuum, a correlation with some of those talking points being picked up by some politicians who are trying to appeal to that vote. And they talk about that Overton window, these these um, fringe parties, don't they? They know that that's the way to get those things talked about, even if they're not in Parliament themselves. 27 past four, Paula Penfold, Stephen Jacoby with me. Uh, thank you for your company this afternoon. Changing tack, completely different topic here. A question from a listener this time. Uh, this came through uh, at the start of the week, actually. Can I ask about names? At a time we refer to the Prime Minister as Chris, why do schools insist on Mr, Mrs or Ms? Should children be addressing adults on a first-name basis? This is 2023 after all. What's wrong with calling your science teacher Roger? What's so bad about calling your economic teacher Karen? It's about being fit for purpose. So I thought, okay, well, let's throw that out, and I've thrown that out to the uh, to the country. Uh, big response here. I make a point of calling medical staff by their names. It reduces the power imbalance because I think we are all engaged to keep me healthy. The patient, not just a lab rat to be acted on. Simon says, Wallace, I created an incident on the North Shore Teachers College as an adult in 71 by refusing to address one of my lecturers by their surname. He tried to get me removed from the college. Uh, Wow. What do you you think about this, Paula? Is it... um, I was at a school where I had to call people Sir. Really? In New Zealand? <laughs> <laughs> I was at the same school. <laughs> it was Sir, mid-late mid, mid late 80s. ridiculous. Well, it was just sick. It was just, or well, was it? Because it was a mark of respect. Really? Yes. <laughs> I, yeah, mean, I mean, I I must say I think that the idea that we're all just going to be calling each other Roger seems a bit weird. But, uh, um, uh, <laughs> Especially um, if it's but, not our name. <laughs> I know that's what I was thinking when Wallace mentioned that, um, but, um, but and I think I think that it does crevet, um It does it does put some boundaries around relationships. And who calls the Prime Minister Chris? I mean, I wouldn't go up to him and say, "Chris, how are you?" I mean, I I mean, I would never call him a, a, a senior politician by the first their first name. Honestly, why not? But why not? Ah, uh, because it's respect. It's a mark of the different relationship. It's uh, it's putting boundaries around it. But, I mean, maybe someone you've known for some time, that's a wee bit different. But I don't call you Mr. Jacoby. Don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Whoops. (laughs) Just don't call me Roger. (laughs) Or Karen. (laughs) Well, that's okay. Karen's all right on certain I guess this person here is uh, flattening the field. You know, uh, there's been a lot of progress uh, around the... Uh, language of children and how we have to relate to them. And this person is saying, actually, we can move further. And actually, what's wrong with calling um, your teacher Alison 
or is it you know mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that I agree with your um, with your listener in fact my kids when they were at primary school most of their teachers were referred to by their first names so you know I think it's definitely changing and has been yeah. changing for quite a while I, I like right. Stephen in a position as a journalist when I'm interviewing somebody say like the Prime Minister or somebody uh, who who you know should be treated with respect I, I, I refer to them Prime by Minister. their proper title Minister but I don't like the idea of, say, a doctor who insists on that honorific being used in an environment that's nothing to do with their profession. That just sounds mm. a bit arrogant mm. to me. That's yeah, right. a, a, a large response, actually. I ran an early childhood centre for de- decades, and the teachers were always called by their first names. And discipline, respect, it was never affected. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, mm. Kia ora, I'm a relief teacher and introduced myself by my first name, but most students call me Miss anyway. Mm. Uh, he says, Lila. Um, fire and matua is all my kids mm. have ever no. used. Yeah. Uh, mm. A teacher is not a friend of the students and thus using a Christian name shows no respect at all. Students should and must respect a teacher. This perhaps explains why standards have dropped so much today. It's a slippery slope. (laughs) I think children sort of innately respect somebody who's an adult, you know, if they've been well brought up. Anyway, it's got nothing to do, I don't think, with the name. I think the Mm. using Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. or whatever just puts a bit of an artificial faux barrier between the teacher and All right, you're on the panel, RNZ National. We have um, uh, Ms. Penfold (laughs) and Mr. Jacoby. Thank you, Mr. Chapman. Don't don't get me started on the amount of feedback we've had regarding airplane etiquette. Uh, We talk about that uh, perhaps later on in the programme.